Well, today we continue our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. I'm calling this series Remarkable. Remarkable comes from two French words, remarque, which means uh, to take note of, and habla, which means worthy. And I've suggested to you that the Gospel of Mark is remarkable. It's worthy to take note of because we believe that it was the first Gospel ever written about Jesus' life and ministry. And we believe that Matthew and Mark, when they wrote their Gospels, that they had the Gospel of Mark to go from as they began to write their Gospel. Mark is the shortest Gospel of the four Gospels in our Bible. And the reason why we believe that to be true is because there was a sense of urgency when Mark wrote his Gospel. The early followers of Jesus were being persecuted on lots of different levels. And Mark wanted to get something into their hands and into their hearts to give them the assurance that God could be trusted and that God would see them through this time of persecution. By the time we get to our scripture lesson today, Jesus is back in his hometown among his hometown friends and family. And if you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, or if you were here a few weeks ago, you might remember that the last time that Jesus was home, in his own hometown, that things didn't really go well for him. Now, I've learned in my own life that there are no harsher critics than the people that have known us the longest, or that know us the best. And how I know this is that I've actually been to some of my class reunions. Now, it is really weird and uncomfortable when you go back to your class reunion, especially the early class reunions, and you're now a pastor. Because everybody gets uncomfortable. Everybody doesn't necessarily like the person that you've become. Everybody would much prefer it if you would be the person that you were long before God ever called you to be a pastor. So they want me to say the things that I would say when, before I was a pastor and do the things that I would do before I was a pastor. They get really uncomfortable. Can I say the things I used to say and do the things I used to do now that I'm around the preacher? And that's exactly what's happening to Jesus in the Scripture lesson this morning. You see, Jesus is no longer the person that He was. And He's made everybody uncomfortable about it. And so they're sitting here, and Jesus has come back home, and they're still perplexed. You know, this guy is not who He used to be. And I'm not sure that I like this new guy. And He's really making me uncomfortable. I mean, where does He get all of His wisdom from? Uh, isn't He Mary's son? He's not anything special. Where, where does He get His power from? Just who does He think He is? They're perplexed, they're uncomfortable, because this is not the person that Jesus is supposed to be. Now, they don't go as far as they did the last time that Jesus came home and say that, that His authority and His power comes from demonic forces, but it's pretty clear that they seriously doubt that the power that Jesus possesses actually comes from God. 
And they're more concerned about the fact that he's not the person that he used to be. He's not playing the role that he used to play. Apparently, there's nobody at Jesus' reunion that says, well, I had Jesus in Sabbath school, and let me tell you what, I knew that from the day I had him in class that he was going to grow up to be the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. I knew it way back then. Uh, apparently Jesus didn't win any superlatives in his graduating class. He wasn't voted most likely to become Messiah or the class president. They're really concerned that this guy is not who he used to be and it makes him really uncomfortable. They want him to play the role that he was meant to play, the role that he was destined to play by virtue of the family that he was born into and by virtue of the community in which he was raised. Jesus is supposed to be a carpenter and nothing else. Jesus, if he's going to do anything with his hands, his hands are supposed to be used to build things, not to heal people. And if Jesus is supposed to have any knowledge whatsoever, he's supposed to have knowledge about how to make furniture and carve plows, not unpack Scripture and understand the Word of God. And they probably thought Jesus was supposed to just step in and fill the rows of his father Joseph. You know, Joseph is not mentioned in Scripture after Jesus makes his surprise appearance in the temple at age 12. And many people believe that the reason why Joseph is no longer mentioned is because he had died. And in Jesus' day, when the father of the family died, the eldest son was supposed to step into that role and do exactly what the father had been doing and was supposed to provide for that family and to stay with that family until they either died or they were able to provide for themselves. And so the fact that Jesus is not playing that role and doing what he was supposed to do, it's got people feeling really uncomfortable. Mark says that they were absolutely astonished. Mark says that they even took offense at Jesus. And maybe that's why. Well, you'd think that Jesus' family would have been the first ones on board that would have said, this is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Anointed One, the One who's came to save people from their sins, wouldn't you? I mean, after all, His mother and father both received a visit from an angel. I mean, a messenger from God came to both of them and said that the Son that Mary carries is none other than the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God, the One who has come to save people from their sins. You'd think that the mother and father, Mary and Joseph, would have communicated that over and over again to to Jesus' brothers and sisters. But it doesn't appear to be the case. I mean, the last time that Jesus was around his brothers and sisters and his family, you know what they were thinking? This guy, Jesus, is out of his ever-loving mind. And while there was a, a group of intimate inner circle followers of Jesus that decided to follow him and to, to do what he said do and to go where he said go, Mark is very clear in the third chapter of the last time that Jesus was in his hometown that his family is not a part of that inner circle. In fact, the language that Mark uses is that his family was actually on the outside on the outside looking in. I guess it shouldn't really surprise us that 
his family and those who've known him the longest and know him the best and know him the most or are uncomfortable around him, that, that don't really like what he's become, that wish he'd go back to being what he used to be because there's a really good chance that a lot of people in this room have had family members who, who tried to convince you that what you believe God created you to be and what you believe that God made you to be and what you believe that God wanted you to do with your life couldn't possibly be true. And because of their narrow-mindedness, because of their familiarity with you growing up, they, they discounted or dismissed this person that you believed that God was calling you to be. I suspect many of us have had family members who, without intending to harm or hurt us or, or to take us away from God's path for our lives, said those kinds of things to us. But I want to suggest to you that before we get too upset and condemning and critical of the crowd and Jesus' family for being uncomfortable about the person that he's become, that we might acknowledge that we too have often questioned Jesus. That we too often have our doubts about who Jesus is and about what Jesus wants to do and about how Jesus wants us to live. And I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in knowing that when I have doubts about Jesus and when I have questions about Jesus and when I have concerns about Jesus, that I can look no further than Jesus' own family and the people who grew up with Him and knew Him the most and know that even those people that were around Jesus intimately every single day had questions of their own. And it makes me feel a little bit better about the questions that I have. Well, Jesus' response to the crowd and to the family who, who aren't very receptive to His ministry, who don't like the person that He's become, that, who wish that He would go back to being the way that He was, Jesus says a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. It's as if Jesus was well aware that one of two things typically happens to a prophet. You either get, uh, you have to leave town, you get run out of town, or you get killed. And Jesus had both of those things to happen to him. And we're also told that Jesus is limited in what he is able to do in his own hometown because people questioned his abilities and because people didn't have faith or belief in what Jesus could do. If you look back to chapter 5, you'll see that faith plays an important role in the healings that Jesus does all throughout that chapter. Every time somebody is healed, it is attributed in part to the faith of the person or persons in that situation. And yet, here in chapter 6, we are told that Jesus was unable to do many miracles because of the lack of faith and belief that the people had in Him. Now make no mistake, the point here is not that Jesus is somehow impotent without our faith. Uh, The Scripture has story after story and example after example of Jesus doing mighty works and wonderful deeds without any reference to faith whatsoever. But it does seem to suggest that if we don't have faith, if we don't believe in what Jesus can do, if we don't have this sense that Jesus can do amazing things in and through and for us, then there's a very good chance that we will miss out on some of the things that Jesus 
wants to do in our lives and in our world. The implication is very clear here that if we don't believe, we will miss out on opportunities. That Jesus could have done more in His own hometown, among His own people and His own family, if they had only believed. And it makes me wonder, what if we expected more of Jesus than we expect Do you think it would make any difference at all? I think it would. I don't think that it would result in us getting everything that we've ever wanted if we had more higher expectations of Jesus. But I do think that there's a really good chance that we could receive more. Let's just talk about it on a practical level in the church. Uh, Let me ask you a question. How many times has your pastor picked a hymn that you've never heard before in your life? Yeah, go ahead and raise your hand. I know that. I mean, we know, we know that, right? Right? I hear some of you come out and say, well, I don't know why in the world we sing that hymn. There ain't nobody here that knew it, you know? What if the next time you walked into church on Sunday morning and Tommy had picked a hymn that you didn't know, you said, I don't know this hymn at all, but I can't wait to see how God uses these strange new words to bless my life. Do you think, do you expect that maybe that just might happen? Let me ask you this. Have you ever left church on Sunday morning saying, I'm pretty sure that Tommy wrote that sermon on a napkin while he was driving to the church today? I wonder what, instead of being critical, saying he needs to spend a lot more time in front of the the Bible than he does in front of the Ole Miss game. I, I wonder if instead we said, boy, that was a poor sermon. And yet my God can take a poor sermon and light a fire in my soul and my spirit. What if we really expected Jesus to be able to do something like that. I don't pretend that Jesus is going to give us everything that we want if we raise our expectations of Jesus. But I do believe, and I do believe this Scripture affirms and confirms that if we do have a higher expectation of what Jesus is doing and what Jesus can do and what Jesus wants to do, then we will see Jesus do more things. Well, the people in Jesus' family didn't have those expectations. The people in His hometown didn't have those expectations. They were not ready for all the things that Jesus could do and that Jesus would do in their lives. And so what happened? Jesus left. Jesus just moved on to other villages and continued to teach. I'm so glad that he didn't just get discouraged by the fact that the people who knew him the best and knew him the most and had known him the longest wouldn't be receptive to what he had to say. I'm so glad that he continued to proclaim the good news of God's love in different places and with different people. And even though his family and members of his hometown weren't a part of that inner circle, he did have 12 people that believed in him enough that they were willing to do what he said do and go where he said go and be 
who he said be. And so Jesus began to call those 12 people together and he sent them out two by two and he gave them the authority to cast out unclean spirits and later we're told that he empowered them to preach. Now I don't know about you, but if I'm one of those 12 that Jesus is about to send out, I'd have a few questions about the mission, you know. How am I supposed to know if a spirit is unclean? Uh, What text am I supposed to preach about whenever it's time for me to preach? I'd have all sorts of different questions, but Jesus doesn't address any of those in his farewell speech to the disciples before he sends them out. Instead, Jesus talks about what they should not take with them. Now, I've told you before that Jesus was the first United Methodist pastor because he itinerated. He never stayed in one place for very long. He moved from town to town and from church to church. But Jesus was also the first TSA agent. You know, Jesus was checking your baggage, checking your luggage, because there are some items that are prohibited for your carry-on merchandise or for your carry-on luggage. He says you're not supposed to have any bread. You're not supposed to have any bags. You're not supposed to have a belt. You're not supposed to have any money. And Jesus wasn't telling you what you couldn't have on your carry-on baggage because he was trying to protect the disciples. Jesus was telling them what they couldn't because he wanted them to rely and depend upon him for their provision. Jesus wanted them to know that they would receive hospitality from people and that would be because he had prompted them. And Jesus wanted them to receive that uh, hospitality. He said, when somebody offers you a place to stay, stay there. Don't hold out for a better deal. Don't wait until somebody with a nicer house offers you to let you stay there. Once you find a place, you stay there. Don't take any money with you because I don't want people to think that you're trying to make money or, or that this is about anything that you might do for your personal gain. This is because of the mission that I'm sending you on. And that I want you to know and I want everyone to know that you are depending solely on me for everything that you need. And then Jesus said, and if they don't listen to you, move on. Shake the dust off your feet, off your sandals, and keep going. Now I would remind you that Mark is writing this and he's writing it immediately. He's trying to get it quickly in the hands of people. He is concerned about the early believers of Jesus And so he's like, you don't have time to try to convince people to follow me. You don't have time to try to convince people that I am the anointed one. Move on. See if you can find a more receptive audience. But far too many of us in our world today take this as an excuse not to really try to help people understand who Jesus is and what Jesus longs to do and be in their lives And while Jesus is telling the disciples to move on quickly in the text this morning, I would suggest that you and I today need to slow down. That we don't need to give up too soon on other people. And we also don't need to push too hard. There's a sweet spot in between giving up too soon and pushing too hard. And I think that sweet spot is where Jesus wants us to be. But ultimately, if people won't listen or they can't listen, we are to move on to someone else. And as we move on, it would probably be a wonderful, beautiful thing if we would continue to pray that even though it doesn't look like God, you're going to use me, 
to help this person understand who Jesus is. I pray that you send someone else that they will be receptive to and that they will hear. I shared this about my father uh, several months ago. My father, for most of his life, was not a Christian. I had prayed over and over again that he would find faith. I had tried to talk to him about Jesus, and he never was receptive. And I had just about given up, but I had people in my life that continued to pray for my father and continued to try to share uh, faith with my father, and it was someone else speaking into my father's life that led him into a personal relationship with Jesus. So what can we do? We can keep the faith. We can keep on living our faith. And hopefully they'll see it in us. But if we don't, we can pray that God might put someone else in their path, that they might see Christ in them. The invitation today is to expect more of Jesus. To share our faith. To not press too hard. To not give up too soon. 